0: pediatric speech language pathologist and welcome to my podcast number 459 expressive language milestones by 36 months brought to you by my website teach me to talk where we're the largest asha approved provider of courses for early intervention thank you so much for being here if it is your first course with us welcome if it's not welcome back we are always happy to have you join us to talk about everything related to early language development so let's just get going today we're continuing our language milestones podcast series and we're all the way up to show number 10 in a 14-part series where we've been reviewing all the developmental language milestones both receptive and expressive language milestones from 12 months all the way through 48 months. Now we've been tackling these milestones in six month increments with one show for receptive language and one show for expressive language. So today, again, we're up to the 10th show in the series, (laughs) finally, right? Uh, And we're talking about the expressive language components that we want to see toddlers, acquire and master by 36 months and we have so much material in this course today we're looking at 13 different milestones so for therapists i'm including the link right here below on youtube so that you can purchase your ce credit in our five dollar ceu program and this includes not only your handout for the show but also your certificate so that you can have that for your uh, licensure renewal or your certification maintenance Now for parents, we're also including a link for you to just buy the handout for the course. And we did not do this at the beginning. This is something that parents really asked us about because our handouts are such a great tool not only for therapists to use with parents, but we're finding that lots of parents use it with their therapist and say, these are the things that we're working on at home or these are the things that are important to us. So we have that option for you too. Uh, So many parents and grandparents also email me all the time and say, how can we help you with your work? And so we've also included a space now that you can purchase the handout for $5 or any other amount that you would like to give so that we can continue to make these courses available for parents all around the world who don't have access to quality services. And let me ask you one more thing before we get started. If you have not subscribed to our YouTube channel already, we would so appreciate that. We always appreciate your support. All right, so for parents tuning in just to check and see how your child is doing, let's go ahead and just quickly review the milestones list that we'll be talking about about today and again you can get this on your handout so go ahead and take a look at that so by 36 months so in this 30 to 36 months developmental range and remember we're talking about developmental not necessarily chronological but this is where a child is and her it is in his or her language uh, acquisition so by this time we want them to be able to accurately answer yes no questions use plurals and so that would be the difference between a word like book versus books so they're putting that final s on there which not only lets us know that they understand you know it lets us know that they understand that concept now there is also a speech component in this but this is a language milestone and we're talking again about plurals as a conceptual uh uh thing here, rather than looking at just that speech component, which is going to be that final S, although that is important. We're also going to be talking about using prepositions now and not just in, put it in, or put it on, but now children are able to use prepositions in phrases, so their speech is becoming more and more adult-like. Children will be able to accurately state gender, specifically their gender, when someone asks them if they are a girl or a boy, and they will also be able to state their first and last name, when someone asks them, what's your name? They're able to relate recent experiences through verbalization. So this is when kids really start to be able to talk to you and tell you about things that happened when you weren't there, and also be able to share an experience with you with words. And it's not just you talking to them saying, hey, remember the time that we went to the zoo and remember what we saw. They're able to really uh, initiate that and then again, participate in sharing that experience with you with words. So that's wonderful. Uh, They're able to use verb forms now, so not just action words, but they're able to mark the tense, so we'll start to see some verb endings emerge, particularly that ing, so instead of run, it's now running, or eat with a final s would become eats, and so again we start to see that early grammar emerge with verb forms by the time a child turns three Uh, other things they can do and milestones that we'll be looking at today in this course expresses physical state words so those are words like hungry thirsty sleepy and again words that really give them more power over their own environment so that they can explain more about what's going on with with them and then again able to uh, share that with you and exchange that information and have more control over their worlds the next thing is converses in sentences, and this would be three to five word sentences. And in our last show about expressive language, which would have been 457, we talked about what it takes to comprise a sentence. And so we know we need a subject and a verb. And so now we have kids Turning 36 months, they speak predominantly in these little sentences that, again, have that early grammatical structure there, and their length is also uh, expanding. Uh, There are a couple little uh, other little milestones here, like counts to three and names basic colors accurately. And then we get into something that, oh gosh, as in a pediatric speech-language pathologist, we spend so much time thinking about this and talking about this and working on this with our little friends. And that's when children begin to answer early WH questions like, what's that? Where'd it go? Those really earliest ones. And they also begin to ask early WH questions. And so many of our little friends with language delays have lots of difficulty with both of those components. Uh, And again, it all, with lots of our friends, it kind of goes back to that receptive language issue. They don't always accurately process or understand. Uh, the words that they're hearing, and that's why they're having difficulty transferring that to that expressive language skill so we don't attain that milestone because they're really missing the underpinnings of that uh, and the foundation there of language. So we're gonna be talking about all of that today and how we help a kid get there. So it's such a long list of milestones, and three is such a pivotal, important age. That's where children really go from being babies on into that preschool, age range they start to be big kids then and it's also an important marker for us as pediatric therapists particularly speech language pathologist or early interventionist or communication specialist whatever you call yourself in your state with three we start to really think about if a language problem persists beyond three it's more serious than late talking and lots of times we don't really convey it that way to parents because we don't want to be negative and I'm certainly not encouraging you to do that, but I want you, as a professional or as a parent watching this, and you're continue to be concerned about your own child. Uh, we we used to really think about this as three is kind of the dividing line, and it's no longer like talking. I do want to add kind of a caveat to there, due to all the effects that we continue to see. Uh, Due to the lockdowns because of the pandemic, we may see more older kids that traditionally we thought, gosh, you know, this is going to be a real language disorder now. We're not just kind of looking at delay. This is much more than like talking. But because of the lack of experiences and because of the, again, the structural changes that happened all over the world because of the pandemic, we may see kids who, again, that just because of their lack of exposure during those first two to three critical years of language learning uh, look like that it's still, uh, that it may be a little bit more serious, but when we get them into some good programming and when they have more exposure, when they have more social experiences and when their world is larger (laughs) than their homes, Uh, they may catch up pretty quickly, but we are going to experience that and see that. And I think that our milestones will probably be adjusted just based on all of the preliminary research that we're seeing about the negative effects that the, the lockdowns had on everyone, not just children. Uh, but certainly we'll probably see that as early neurovectionist in the years to come. All right, so what happens in this age range? What are we really seeing? Vocabulary continues to explode. And we said that children have their language explosions in typical language development between that 21 to 24 month uh, developmental range, but certainly throughout childhood, and and certainly here as children turn three at 36 months, we are going to continue to see not only their receptive language growing what they understand, but certainly in what they can say. Now, the milestone for 36 months, if you Google that and look at that, the internet is just has a huge range of that. Some sites are still saying things like that 200 to 300 word vocabulary is typical at age three and that's just not true that's what we use for typical language development by 24 months at 36 months uh, the nih which actually has uh, better recommendations and more accurate recommendations for what we've traditionally used for language milestones than say the cdc does Uh, the NIH lists our vocabulary uh, benchmark here at a thousand words at 36 months. And so we have to really be sure that we are educating our parents with that, not to have them just continually get smacked in the face with your kid is behind, your kid is behind, your kid is behind, but just so that we know where the norm is and so that we are always looking at, at what that pace really is supposed to be. All right, our first milestone on this list is answers questions accurately with yes or no. Now many children master answering these yes, no questions long before two and a half, especially if they are in a familiar context of responding to questions like, do you want a cookie? Uh, Do you want to take a bath? Are you ready to go inside? Those kinds of things. However, many times a child with a language delay or disorder will continue to have difficulty getting uh again just making their yes and no completely accurate so let's talk about how we get kids there to accurately answer these yes no questions the short answer is they have to understand the question (laughs) because that's the basic problem and again this is the point that I've tried to make throughout this entire language milestones podcast series is when we're looking at that a kid is not meeting the milestone expressively, before we implement lots of other strategies to kind of get that going, we have to make sure that receptively that foundation is there and we know that when it when anybody answers a question inaccurately it's because they didn't process the question correctly so this is really a receptive language task too and so we've been doing this uh kind of talking about the sequence of how children acquire how they not only answer questions but how they understand questions i've done that in a lot of different shows because i think it's imperative for us as speech-language pathologists and developmental interventionists, that we really understand this sequence and that we don't have an unrealistic expectation of a child's... Again, we're looking at, at expressive language in this show, but that we just don't have unrealistic expectations. You're not supposed to be able to answer... Uh, say, a WH question that's a why question or a how question until you've mastered getting yes, no completely accurate or, again, those simpler WH questions. So, that's the point I want to make in this is that how interconnected this is and we can't always treat everything as an expressive language problem without really, really, especially in toddlers and young preschoolers, looking at that receptive language piece too. So, How do kids acquire their ability to be able to answer and ask questions? First, they learn this yes-no questions like we just talked about related to their immediate contact. So, that's going to be something that's right in front of them and something that's usually directly related to a personal need. Questions like, Do you want a cracker? Or is that mommy? You know, they can get those things. And so it doesn't always either begin with a verbal answer. Although now that we're looking at these language milestones, and again, we're right here between 30 and 36 months, it does need to be a verbal response. But kids don't start there. They start with uh, a nonverbal response. And so again, it's probably, the reason I'm telling you this is as far as accuracy is concerned, you're probably more accurate with the kid's nonverbal response up until about two and a half than you are their verbal response and that's a that's a really uh, funny thing to kind of look at we have a grandbaby who is 20 months old and he's recently uh, we used to kind of joke about this and his mother our daughter is a speech language pathologist too so we talk about this all the time uh, and and he recently would answer, no to everything but that she would know that his no really meant a yes just by his intonation he would say no just with a different prosody and so his no his emphatic no is a no but when he really means yes it's more like a no and so again just a little thing and you'll notice that with uh with ki- even our little friends with language delays too. So many toddlers have a preferred response that they default default to no matter what the question. For more kids, it seems to be no, but I have had some kids who were really pretty pleasant who were head nodders and like a yes no matter what we ask them. But by two and a half, if this is not accurate, we really do need to work on it. So the best way to do that is to help a child link meaning really with those nonverbal responses. So really having them continue their nonverbal responses of shaking their heads no and yes and linking that word with it. And so we also have to know that when we're giving a toddler a choice, many times they repeat the word or the last choice that they hear instead of answering that question uh, with a yes or a no. And so what we need to do is really add the yes or no option on the end of that. So instead of for kids who don't routinely answer, for kids who echo that last word, instead of just saying something like, do you want more yogurt? You say, do you want more yogurt? Yes or no. And again, give that little cue where you yourself are modeling the yes, not only with your words, but also with your uh, gestures so that they really, really understand that. Years ago, I had a little guy uh, that we worked with with autism. Gosh, I bet that this has been 20 years ago now. And he, he was undiagnosed. Actually the, The the first time that he went through, they told his parents he had no autism, but, you know, his team, we were like, oh yes, oh yes, this is, I'm sorry that, they didn't confirm this diagnosis, you know, they told the parents, you're going to need to bring him back, but they, you know, went back later and got that diagnosis like a year later, but we worked with him in the interim, and Uh, he could not really understand how to answer questions I mean he had such a hard time with this and this is a little boy who had thousands of words in his vocabulary he was very very verbal but the the processing piece was super super hard for him and so when we started just giving him the yes no option at the ends of uh, especially for choices at home instead of freezing or echoing the last word and then he would get so upset and so annoyed that his mother didn't just give him what he wanted because he knew that she knew and he felt like that she was holding out on him but when we started putting that little yes no option in there it's like a light bulb went off for him and he would say yes <laughs> you know when you would ask him a question that he and, and it was so evident to us that he had wanted to respond accurately but we just had not given him that prompt so that he would be able to do that. So certainly adding that little, uh, do you wanna play bubbles? Yes or no? Uh, Do you wanna get in the bathtub? Yes or no? Do you wanna, and again, you can't always ask kids this and really let them, they don't always have the power to choose you. Do you wanna go to bed? Yes or no? They don't really always have the power to choose that, but when they do, it is a it is a wonderful way to get a kid to again accurately and begin to move toward doing that rather than staying just with nonverbal gestures or again improving his accuracy there or echoing. Now the other thing with teaching a kid to answer yes or no questions accurately is really, really helping them understand. <coughs> that the response that they're giving is not going to get them what they want. And so, if a child answers no for everything, what do you do? You've got to find something that he wants to say yes for, right? and so you offer it to him and when he says no you withhold it a little bit until you can get him to do you know oh you mean yes you mean yes you mean yes and again uh maybe putting that instead of saying yes or no which is kind of the way that we typically present that uh you know you want some juice? yes or no put yes if you if that if he's an echoer and that's the word that you want him to say Put that as your last response. So do you want juice? No or yes. And again, that'll help kids move toward that. If you have kids that answer yes for everything, and again, this is a little more uncommon than the no would be, find something that they dislike and offer that. And I had a little girl like this a few years ago. She was predominantly nonverbal. So this isn't the same kind of thing that we're talking about with a verbal response at three but with that little girl, just, again, giving her something that she didn't like. She did not like crayons. She only wanted markers. And so to get her to really, really learn to say no, which would have been something, you know, totally functional that she really needed, we had to uh, teach her how to say that and teach her how to refuse. So look at what situation is going on with the particular child and come up with, you know, why, why is it here? Is it that we're just not offering them that option with answering yes and no? Are we not supporting them enough with their nonverbal or gestural cues? Or do we really have to teach it from a conceptual level so that they understand, you know, yes is affirmation and no is rejection? So look at what you need to do there and uh, set up those situations. The next milestone is uses plurals. Now, a toddler with typically developing language skills will begin to understand and use plurals. And again, that's making something from a singular or go from one to more than one by 30 months. So, an important prerequisite, like we talked about in the introduction, is that a child does have the speech skill to be able to include a final consonant, so a final S or Z uh, to make the word plural, so if a child that you're working with can't do these things yet, so he's, that his little speech system also has a delay or disorder there, and he's not able to mark finals yet, or certainly he doesn't have uh, the S or the Z, the sibilant there, you know, that's, this might not be as realistic a goal as you would want it to be, but you still kind of want to marking it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I I want to make this point. Don't include this as a goal for a child uh, if there's a speech issue that you think, again, you're not going to work on it too hard until you can get that speech component to make sure that that's realistic. All right. The other thing you want to do is be sure that you're teaching the concept of plurals receptively first. So, be sure that you're emphasizing your final S and Z with the plural as you're modeling this. And so, you're going to be teaching plurals in context. And in the beginning, I kind of pair uh, when I'm teaching plurals, not necessarily one versus two. but And you'll certainly do that in, in the context of everyday, everyday routines. You're going to be talking about sock versus socks and a shoe versus shoes. But what I'm talking about here is when we're really teaching children to understand that concept, it's really better to do one versus lots of different things that you're doing. And I like to use snack time for this because I think snack time is so functional uh, for toddlers and it keeps them with you. And a lot of times I'm doing it and you want this one cheese ball or do you want all the cheese balls? And so, again, we're really emphasizing the ending on that word so that uh, children hear that and they begin to really link meaning with that. Uh, If you're having difficulty getting a child to produce an S, uh, use a consonant consonant vowel, consonant target here, a word like cup, because with an unvoiced consonant, because it's going to be easier for a kid to mark. So let's say that I like to uh, water play is a fun thing to do with toddlers, and I do that a lot when I'm working on plurals because we can use cup versus cups. Um, Boot versus boots, that's another good target. What I was going to say here, boat versus boats, because we've got the final P and the final T there uh, that are unvory unvoiced so there's some good word lists for you in functional phonology which is another one of my therapy manuals if you ever need that kind of resource or it's the speech component is really really prohibiting a child from reaching this goal and again you want to be sure that you're doing some testing with this so that you maybe uh, let's well, say that you're playing with farm animals and you have things there so that you're you know you have one baby pig versus a little set of baby pigs so that you're helping a child understand and so you're doing some you know you're doing some testing there and you're saying you know oh let's put a pig in the truck versus let's put some pigs so that you're really really again getting a feel for if the child understands that receptively Um, Encourage parents to teach plurals in the context of functional activities, like we already talked about, the sock versus socks, shoe versus shoes. And what I tell parents is when we want a kid to mark this, we want some kind of hissy little sound at the end for our sibilants, S and Z. So even if they're getting something like socks, you know, or something that's, you know, an approximation of an S, that's what we want to hear about this age level so that children are beginning to use, again, those morphological endings that tell us that their systems are maturing and their language complexity is bumping up. And certainly we're going to talk about plurals here as well as verb endings, which is coming up in uh, another milestone or two. The next milestone is uses prepositions. Now we've been talking a lot about prepositions. We started talking about this way back at 12 months, but here, remember what we said, by three, we want children using prepositions in phrases now we've talked a lot about prepositions uh what what the list are and and what what would be required by a certain age range so let's look at the ones by three now our early ones that we said by 24 months were in out off on up down and here and there but by three we're going to also add under by and around and so we're going to see some different different sources cite different things but that's pretty consistent So let's talk about how to help a child understand prepositions so that he can be able to use prepositions. And again, here we're talking about in phrases. Let's kind of walk through this continuum in case this is something that you haven't really thought about and you're kind of jumping in in the middle of this series or with a child who's older and who, again, may have some. Uh, weaknesses back here that you got to go in and shore up. So once a child understands and imitates prepositions, here's how I do it. I play a game that I kind of, you know, as I'm writing my notes and I'm planning my sessions, I think I'm going to play where's the. And so I'm just going to do a lot of silly things by placing a a highly preferred object in various places. And I'm just, we're going to ask where's the, and I'm going to do a lot of modeling the phrase even before I expect a child to be able to say it. So if we were here in a session and whatever toy he liked, I might put it on my head or uh, I might put it in my pocket or I might put it under me. So under Laura. And so again, those are the kinds of things that you're going to do where you're really talking about it. You know, Oh, where's your car? Oh, it's on my head, on my head. Oh, where is it now? Oh, it's on your head. Oh, now it's on your knee. And so again, move through different locations like that. I use the same preposition there, but you're gonna wanna vary your prepositions too. So model the preposition and encourage the child. Lots of times if they're not already using the preposition, you don't wanna put it in the phrase, even though that's the milestone that we're going for here at this developmental level, you'll need to get it as a single word first. And again, usually you can get it Uh, as a single word it's of course alone or at the end of a phrase so again like put it in take it off uh hold it up those are the kinds of things that we would get initially and if a kid isn't using a lot of prepositions you know you're going to have to get that first before you get a kid using a preposition in a phrase which again you're going to move that location then not at the end of his little phrase but now it's going to be at the beginning so on my head in my pocket or uh even if they're not getting the the uh putting a a a pronoun in there like my pocket on 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 head in pocket uh off foot you know what are you doing those kinds of things we want that that preposition in the phrase now i like when uh, we've been talking about that little where's the game i like for kids to take a turn too to move the object around too that's a lot of fun when they're again nearing this three-year-old age level getting older start to really understand jokes and kind of they want to repeat the same joke again and again and again and so that's going to be a lot of fun for a child a good activity there Uh, They also need to be good imitators before this kind of activity is going to work too. And so certainly by three, we've been talking about imitation now for two solid years. We've been looking at imitation being established there at about by 12 months. And so by three, even with a kid who's language delayed, especially (laughs) with a kid who's language delayed, you want to be sure that that imitation is firmly established so that you can work on these goals really, really efficiently. If you're working with a child on super specific goals like these, like using prepositions and phrases and they're not consistent imitators, you may be wasting your time. So you might be able, you're going to be better off to back up and work on increasing the frequency and ease of imitation attempts and then you're going to want to move forward with your super specific language goals, once a child can imitate more quickly. All right, so after a few sessions, when you've played the "Where's the?" and again, you're not. This isn't the focus of your session. You're doing just lots of other things within your play routines, but you're kind of making that little that little part or that little. No matter if you're playing cards, you know, you might stop when you're playing cards and you know play the little "Where's the?" game as a part of that. Or if you're doing an art activity. You and you're coloring together. You might, you know, do put your marker different places. You know, where's the marker now? Where's the marker under the table? Where's the marker by your ear? Where's the marker, uh, you know, in my shirt? Those kinds of things. When you played that, you know, little bits and pieces throughout your whole session, or as a parent at home, little periods of time, do that for a while. But then you're going to begin to ask the questions, offering choices. Uh, with the prepositional phrase for the response. So say that you're you're playing Spider-Man. So is Spider-Man in the car or is he under the car? And so again, that's how you get the kids moved toward using the entire phrase. So the child should begin to u- choose correctly when you're using those choices with the prepositional phrases. If he doesn't correctly use prepositions in this context, then you know that he doesn't really understand what the words mean. And so then you're going to have to go back and spend some time teaching the prepositions receptively first. Other fun activities to teach prepositions that we've talked about in previous shows, putting a child in a laundry basket or in a box or in some kind of container is just the best way to elicit those prepositions, and it's so fun, and so the child has to tell you where he wants to sit. So, does he want to sit in the basket, does he want to sit on the basket, does he want to sit under the basket, does he want to sit beside the basket, and once you've done it in the basket, you can do it in a lot of different contexts, too. Then I might pick up a child and we move over to the chair, and we do the same thing in the chair, and again, he's getting all that practice. I've had such good success with that little activity that I want to be sure that you know about it, too. Uh, for teaching prepositions but that's certainly something that we want to see by 36 months is that a child is able to use a variety of prepositions in a phrase. The next milestone is states gender. Now a child with typically developing language can correctly state his or her gender when asked by 30 to 33 months. But before a child can perform that skill, he has to understand gender. He has to understand boy versus girl. So if applicable, if a child has siblings, that's certainly a great way to teach it, to identify boys and girls as a great beginning activity for learning gender words. And certainly children do this with their parents from the beginning. Mommy is a girl, daddy is a boy, and you are a whatever they happen to be. So when I teach gender, I do it the traditional way and I contrast boys and girls with characters in play. And we're doing this no matter what we're playing. Woody is a boy. Jesse is a girl. Uh, Whoever the characters are on Paw Patrol. Chase is a boy. Skylar, I think, is the girl on Paw Patrol. And again, just do it with those little characters. The best way if children... Are having difficulty with that. The other thing I like to do is getting just really generic dolls that have those traditional uh, depictions of boys versus girls. If a child likes pictures and likes looking at books, clothing catalogs, or magazines, or even pictures on mom's phone are a great way to look through and begin to label gender. But again, you're going to have to look for publications that use that traditional. Uh, so the traditional viewing of that so that children are really able to differentiate that. After learning to accurately identify boys and girls, be sure to teach a child to answer correctly when they are asked specifically about themselves. Are you a girl or a boy? And parents can certainly handle that kind of practice and they've been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. So we're certainly gonna keep on with that kind of uh, traditional practice with working on gender. Let's move on to talking about uh, skill that's really similar, and that states first and last name. And this is another parent goal that moms and dads are already working on is helping children learn to say their names when someone asks them, what's your name? Sometimes parents have only practiced their uh, child's first name, but by three, we want them saying both their first and last name. The only way to help a kid learn this is practice, practice, practice practice. Um, and so making this a part of a child's daily routine is really the most efficient way that I've found to do that. And so I've talked to moms about when they can really work on this every day. And you can't over practice it. You can't really ask a child 500 times a day and him not get tired of it. <laughs> so you've got to really help a parent understand when they're going to work on it. And so maybe putting in that as a part of their daily routine, like every time they're going to buckle the child into a car seat or every time they're getting ready to, uh, you know, dry off after bath. Just sometimes so that a mom is really, really working on it and making it a part of the routine. For a child who has lots of difficulty with this, you may have to use some ABA methods. Now, quick trials of modeling. What's your name and then you respond with the child's name and then when they respond, you immediately reward that with a tangible reward. We're usually using what? usually an edible, (laughs) right, a snack, but you can also use a physical reward like a hug or a tickle or throw them up in the air, whatever they like for you to do, but again, you may have to do some that direct training, And, and let me just kind of help you walk through that, so let's say that a girl's name is Emmy Johnson, so you're going to, you know, what's your name, Emmy Johnson, and you're, again, rewarding her and you, you label it with her, you answer your own question, what's your name, Emmy Johnson, and you help her say Emmy Johnson. And as soon as she says that, that's when you provide the reward. If you can go faster and get lots of repetitions, the child is going to learn and maintain that skill more quickly. That's what our ABA colleagues have taught us and it works really, really well. And again, speed helps retention. And so do that initially, and then you're gonna back your reinforcement off so that it's just variable. So that you're, or I like to think about it, you know, you're not going to, as some people like to say, throw the party (laughs) every single time she responds, then you're going to back off a little bit. And maybe before you had been really woohoo and really celebrating and now you're just going to say, oh, it's so good and just give a little less of that, even that verbal praise. And so do that over time and really help a child learn to respond to that. But answering, stating their gender when they're asked, and then stating their first and last names are important skills that we need to help kids learn by the time they're three. The next milestone is relates recent experiences through verbalization. So this means a kid is able to talk and to tell you about what's happened to him and share that experience with you with words. So by the time a child with typically developing language uh, approaches three, he will have enough conversational skills to be able to use a series of intelligible uh, sentences, short sentences to tell an adult about an event or an experience. So at about 24 months, we sort of started looking at this. So over the last year, between 24 months and 36 months, A child, again, will have increased their vocabulary, and at the beginning of this period, it might have been that they predominantly used a lot of single words or short phrases or even some jargon when a child would be trying to tell you what happened, but now he can string together enough recognizable words and even some sentences so that they're able to tell you about some things that have happened even when you weren't present. Now, most parents work on this every day, right, by prompting a child to relate and share something personal that happened to them when they were away, say, at daycare or or at preschool, or even things like when they say a mom comes home with the child and say they've gone, you know, somewhere that afternoon. A mom might say, "Hey, tell daddy what we did today." And so I recommend this kind of coaching and scaffolding, which is a strategy that we use to facilitate the skill. So, what is scaffolding? By scaffolding, I mean that you're going to offer the words a child needs, when he needs it, if he's struggling to find it. And so again, you're kind of, kind of support him as he bumps up to that next level. And so let's use an example. Let's say that a child is telling daddy about his doctor visit and mom took the child uh, to the doctor and there maybe got just a, a routine procedure, whatever happened. And so Uh, Let's say that they're going, and let's say that the child is trying to tell uh, dad that the doctor looked in his ears, and so he might say something, you know, I go doctor, I go doctor mommy, and then mom fills in and saying, oh yes, tell daddy, what did the doctor do? Where did the doctor look? Did, did the doctor look in your mouth? Did the, and, and mom is providing those things, and then Daddy's saying, uh, the child is saying to daddy, my mouth, I opened. And again, using those little, and probably because we're talking about three-year-olds and not two-year-olds, bump it up to those three to five word sentences there. And so my point here is, We have to provide that, we have to give them those steps so that a child, we fill in those words and then we have a child imitate that so that they can begin to uh, participate in those conversations and relate those personal experiences. And a lot of times with our kids with language delays, we're gonna have to coach them for a while. And not only because, I mean, look at all the components here. We've got that memory component. They have to remember what went on and then they have to be able to put those words with it and then they have to string those words together with those memories and be able to tell you about it and so a lot of our little friends especially especially our little friends who have had receptive language issues will have a hard time with that so we do have to use scaffolding with it now um uh Kids with typically developing skills two by three will be able to talk in complete sentences with that. And so again, that's our expectation. But many children at this phase still won't initiate conversation very well. And they're not able to answer open-ended questions like what happened when you went to the doctor or what did you do at school today? And so for those kinds of kids when we're really working with them to be able to help them be able to use words to relate these personal experiences, we have to give more specific options for them. So choices, you know, when you were at, and help parents do this. So instead of saying, what did you happen to do at school today? What happened at school today? Instead of just kind of leaving it there, like help parents learn how to scaffold that conversation and help them by giving choices. So did you play outside or did you play in the gym? Did you, uh, who did you sit by at lunch today? Did you sit with Emmy or did you sit with, a Benny, you know, whatever. And so again, you're giving kids choices so that they, and cues so that they have some options to be able to respond appropriately. You're gonna wanna work on this in sessions too. So in order to uh, target this with a child on your caseload, Help a child tell his parents about something that you did in therapy with him, especially if the parent left the room or maybe had a phone call or something happened, or if you even if you're seeing a child at home and mom had to step out, that's a perfect opportunity for you to be able to uh, use that and really model that for a mom because she's going to be coming back in and she's not going. And you might even say to her, hey, I'm going to really coach him through help telling you what we did. And so this, I want you to kind of watch, I want you to see how we do it here, because this is how you're going to be able to get this with him when I'm not here, and you may be able to word that in a way that doesn't sound quite as uh, therapy uh, directed as I did it there, you know, and say, you know, you, you may not be as always as obvious with, hey mom, you're not doing this, and I want you to see me do it, don't be like that but at the same time really give moms a heads up with hey when you okay great go take that phone call and when you come back I'm going to have him tell you about what we played so just kind of know that when you come back and moms are ready for that and they're thinking about it and then that makes your therapy so intentional right for you're really planning what you're going to do and you're showing mom and doing that so orchestrate the situation introduce a new tour or an activity that you know that child's going to enjoy and then when mom comes back have him tell mom about that and you know you'll say let's tell mommy what we did first we played with the and again you do lots of that setting up those uh, verbal routines and setting up that uh, uh, close method that completion method there now remember when you do too many questions it's always better than that Uh, the confrontational strategy of using too many questions, you know, tell mommy what we did. What did we play first? What did we play next? Then what did you do? That can really shut a child's attempts to respond down. But if you're modeling those short phrases, and if you are, are again, doing that completion method, then we put the boat in the, you know, and the child says water. And again, you're setting that up for them. Or, Or you're whisper coaching him and you're saying something like, oh, tell mommy we put it in and that really will help a child and again give him those words so then he's able to relate those personal experiences that's become a part of a therapy routine for lots of parents with kids that i see it doesn't happen with every kid but that is a great great routine to kind of get established anytime that they have to do something where their attention is diverted a little bit from therapy when they come back have a child tell them what happened sometimes uh, parents will even do that too they'll come in and you know when i see them they'll say tell laura what happened at preschool or tell Laura what you did with grandma or tell Laura. And so again, get those little routines going. That's a great way to help practice that. Uh, and again, you you have to coach the parents so that they can coach their child through it. It's a really natural thing for parents to do. I don't want to set it up like, you know, parents, parents don't know how to do that or they're doing that all the time. But we have to, again, make it really, really intentional and really, really purposeful. Our next milestone is uses verb forms. Now, in typically developing language, the earliest verb forms to emerge by age three are ing or ing verbs. So, running, talking, jumping, sleeping, drinking. Now, some sources also list the past tense ed like jumped or hopped or uh, sipped And S, like eats or runs as a verb ending in this developmental phase, but some tools include this milestone as an older skill toward four, and I tend to agree with that a little bit more. And again, again, I think a lot of times our views are really skewed, right? Because we work with toddlers and preschoolers with language delays, so a lot of times we as SLPs are going to be on the back end of that, but remember, we are talking about typical language development, so really, um, again, that probably our, our perception might be a little bit skewed. So, including any verb ending will not emerge in children, again, with phonological delays or disorders who have not uh, learn to include final consonants yet. And again, don't you think this is so interesting as a speech-language pathologist that we think about as from a speech perspective that we want to see finals emerging by what? By age three? And we're looking at all these language forms that come in by age three that depend on this final consonant ending, like the verb forms or like plurals that we just talked about. So again, uh, language is always interconnected with speech, uh, when we're talking about an expressive form here rather than looking at receptive. So my point here is with our kids who also have speech issues, we've got to make sure that we are targeting the language form, but know that we may not be hearing that because of the speech problem. I hope that makes sense to you. All right. To teach verb endings, what do we do? And again, this is such a traditional preschool kind of SLP goal. And those of you who have worked in preschool programs for years, I mean, you know this kind of stuff, you know what to do, but let me caution you when we're working with, uh, again, toddlers who've had language delays, you may not be able to, or or significant language delays, you're not going to be able to maybe do this like you would your kids that are strictly a phonological thing. Remember, we're talking about language from a conceptual uh perspective here so you might be able to use a worksheet or an app or a flashcard with those older kids when you've been working on verb endings but with our little guys who again have been language like toddlers Uh, not just the speech part of it. The best way to teach this is always going to be with real life activities. So because we're working at, we're talking about actions with verbs, uh, the best way to target it is with action games. So we've been talking about this strategy in a previous podcast for teaching verbs. I like the I can games and where again, this is basically Laura acts like an idiot. And does anything I can to help a child kind of want to interact with me and get these verb endings going, and and it would be with a high energy game. So something like jumping. So what are we doing? I'm jumping, 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 jumping. We are jumping, jumping, and then y'all stop and ask the child, "What did we do? We jumped." And again, this is going to be a higher level thing. Is this something that we're going to work with? Uh, you know, a lot of times when we work with in early intervention, we don't get there with our kids, right? A lot of times if you are strictly a birth to three person, you may not get there with your children. But those of us who go on to work with kids on into preschool, these are the kinds of things we're doing. My point with this whole, with this whole thing that I was trying to make before is you can't always rely on visual, your visuals like your flashcards or your apps there. You have to really, really do it with, Uh, real-life activities, all right? So, uh, when you're doing these kinds of things, when you're teaching uh, verb endings, you have to be, and this is for our parents or for developmental therapists who may not think about this as much as we SLPs do, but you have to be careful with your verb tenses and be careful with your targets because some verbs are going to be irregular. And so, if we were using a word like running, we can't really contrast that. If we're going to do an ING Uh, present progressive running kind of target that verb with a past tense ed verb because run would not be correct right grammatically and so remember we're going to have to think about that and kind of be on our toes when we're looking what our targets are going to be and we'll have to model a fair amount before a child is going to be able to use verb endings on his or her own so that's certainly uh, something that we have to think about all right another favorite way to introduce verb endings is with the song and i've sung it before here on the podcast but I, and again, with toddlers, we think of so many times as just exposure is our primary uh, strategy at the very beginning, just having them hear and us really emphasize and really model uh, what our, what our goal would be. So for here, it would be verb endings. And so our little song, marching, 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 hop, 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 hop. running, 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 now we stop now we stop and so again you can adapt that you've got your ing verbs there i have done it with crying you know crying 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 and again anything that you want to do anything that a child is doing like that that you are really wanting to uh, facilitate them hearing those verb endings so that you can model that so with a little forethought you can make any ing verb fit that song for your situation. You're gonna wanna perform the actions as you sing the song. That activity is always a big hit with toddlers and their siblings or friends. And teach that song to parents for homework. And again, uh, I bet as a pediatric SLP or another kind of therapist, you have a lot of those little, uh, kind of those foundational songs that you put any kind of context in. So be sure that you're talking about it with parents. Um, Recommend other verbs for inclusion at home in their daily routines like washing, uh, during bath time or brushing, when they're brushing their hair or their teeth, and that is like auditory bombardment. Remember, we talked about this back in our in our last group of shows, 457 and 458, when we were looking at skills up to 30 months, and we talked about why hearing is so so important with our little friends with language delays and disorders, and we really have to model it. So talk with parents about that a lot. You know, with their expectations. You know, instead of testing it all the time. You know, are they producing these verb endings? You have to spend a fair amount of time teaching that too. So verb endings are fun. Keep it real. Keep it in real life activities for toddlers. You can use your your apps and your pictures, but always make sure that you're keeping it in real context first. The next skill is expresses physical state words. So by the time a child with typically developing language is turning three, she begins to use a few adjectives to describe her physical state like hungry, thirsty, sleepy, sick, or tired. So we're gonna teach these words in context using situations that come up in play. So let's say you're playing with your farm set or your baby doll set. You know, With your farm set, you would say something like, your farmer is so sleepy, he's so tired. What does he need to do? He needs to go to bed. Or why is the daddy crying? Is he hurt? What happened to the daddy? And so again, you are you are creating those questions and you're answering those with that physical state word, or you are using that physical state word, and again, you're using other words to really explain that. So, when the and, and again, all these skills that we're going to talk about in this age range, and uh, particularly the next shows when we bump up to 42 months and then end this whole series with 48 months. All of these physical state words and all of these things that we're using, like the, these, form the foundation for skills like analogies and skills like answering questions logically and making inferences. And so, when we're using these little, again, these physical state words, you're thinking, why is that such a big deal? Why is that all of these things really are so layered? And so, in order for a child to begin to logically respond to those kinds of questions, you know, when we start to ask them questions about, you know, their, their, thinking processes here, they've got to have these words to really be able to respond. So that's what we're doing here at this stage, in this phase, is really helping children acquire that basic vocabulary and begin to really, begin to really be able to use words to express kind of that cause and effect. So when the cow is eating the hay, when you're you're playing something like that, look, your cow is eating. Mm -mm 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 -mm. He must be so hungry. That cow eats, he's hungry, he's hungry, so he eats. And so you you are consistently making those associations and using those words for that. So after a while, what do we do? After we model, 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 what do we always do? We set up the situation so that a child can complete that sentence. And that's always that in-between Uh, Phrase We just talked about scaffolding where we're going to really provide that next little that input so that child can get to the next level that's sort of what we're doing with the completion method or how we're talking. It's kind of a good framework to look at all of these goals where we talk about it first. We're going to model it and sort of teach it receptively model 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 and then so that a child can begin to imitate that and when it when it's our turn for him not to just do that or when it's his turn for him not just to do that direct imitation. We're going to use that completion method or allow a child to fill in the blank. With these kinds of statements. So we'll say something like, Your baby is crying. Oh my goodness, your baby is crying. She's so upset. She wants a drink. She must be. And we leave that line there, what, that 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 space there for them to fill in, what, thirsty, that physical state word. So talk with parents about using these words consistently at home during daily routines. And a lot of times we have to really talk with parents about what these vocabulary words are. And so you might even have to make a little list and give them something specific. Now, before this show, this is, I think, at about, uh, probably at the third, we're up to show 459 with our handouts. In this Language Milestones podcast series, I had been including a vocabulary list and I stopped at about the 24-month or 30-month level. But go back and look at that vocabulary list and get those words. And we, we have it here on this handout too. If you've purchased the handout for the show with what these specific vocabulary words are. So words like hungry, thirsty, sleepy and tired at bedtime, Words to describe temperature when they're planning to leave home every day, such as you need your coat because you're going to be too cold. It's too cold for you to go without your coat. That's why you're going to wear your coat right now. And so again, it's a precursor to completing analogies and inferences, and those are coming up after 36 months. But with with our kids who are, again, on their way to that, sometimes the reason that they're not able to do that higher level stuff is because we didn't take the time to really teach the vocabulary back at an easier, earlier level. So that's what we're doing here with physical state words. So just play, 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 and be sure that you're setting up those situations in everyday routines so that parents are using that vocabulary. Our next milestone is really important because we get to this sentence level here. So it's children converse in three to five word sentences. So by the time a child is ready to turn three, he or she should be talking in short sentences routinely. So this is the point when parents really begin to feel like they are having conversations with their toddlers. And so what do we do if a child is not consistently using longer utterances? Now, as an SLP, when I ask you this, I hope that you're thinking of this one word strategy and what is it it's expansion so we always have to expand what they're saying and how do we do that we give them choices and help them add that one more word and so again uh we all we we use that to uh, get those extra words going so and then we have a child repeat the entire sentence so when a child says something like uh give me that we say we help them put that other word on there about what defining what that pronoun is so we say what's that which one is that that car or that truck and then you have a child again repeat that give me that truck or give me that car so that they're adding one more word to get Uh, that extra thing. And that's what that whole concept of expansion is, right? Many of our language disorder children get stuck using mostly generic phrases or holistic phrases rather than novel combinations. And so later those children may be diagnosed with word retrieval difficulty. So we have to help him here in this period target more specific language as well as increase that utterance length. And so sometimes we look at why isn't a child Conversing in sentences, why isn't he at that level? We look at it strictly as a length problem when lots of times there's really, or a syntax problem. You know, we just need that extra word on the end of there, that extra grammatical uh construct there but when really it's a semantic problem they're really missing the meaning they have to get more specific language as well as increase that utterance length and so let's say that a child again that you have a child who is stuck using lots of holistic phrases like i want more or like i just used in that example give me that and so again the best the best way to uh get him to increase that utterance length and expand that semantically is by putting that really specific word on the end. So then I want more becomes I want more juice. And then uh, we keep adding, again, one more word, one more word, one more word until we get that length where we want it to be. Even though we're talking about length, as a child's expressive vocabulary grows, his utterance length typically increases too. So we have to always keep vocabulary development and paying particular attention to that with any category of words that a child lacks. And so as an SLP, it should be second nature to think about things like I'm only hearing about ten different words with this kid and he's thirty to thirty-six months old. He already has several hundred words, and so he's gonna need a lot more verbs than this. And so Vocabulary development, again, my point here is always, always, always going to be a goal, even if we're looking at something like uh, getting that uh, length longer. So let me interject something else here. What about the conversing part? You know, converses in three to five word sentences. So what is that really talking about? Here we mean that a child will take turns talking in conversations. And so this turn-taking skill is another important component of this milestone Uh, Dr. Rossetti, who is still my favorite language expert, teaches that a child should be able to take four to nine conversational turns by 30 months. And so again, that's at the beginning of this age range. So certainly in this age range that we're looking at here, 30 to 36 months, we want kids to really have that reciprocity nicely established so that they don't go back and forth just a couple of times. We're in those real conversations where again, four to nine conversational turns many children on our caseloads will continue to struggle with that and keep up their end of a conversation well after they turn three. So we can't forget about looking at what? At those pragmatic skills when we're in SLP. And so pragmatics means how a child uses a word or functions of a word. And again, this is certainly an important component of conversational skills. And let me just say it one more time. We've looked at, we've got to get the length with, we were going to do that with expansion, right? Adding that one more word. And then we looked at, the semantics that children need the concepts if they're lacking like entire word classes, let's say they don't have enough verbs or they don't have enough descriptive words like adjectives or they don't have pronouns. You know, they're, they're lacking this kinds of things. Or maybe maybe they have more verbs than they do nouns, which would be a really atypical thing. But anytime we see that, you know, again, we have to do it. So we, we have to, treat what they're missing, right? So we've looked at the syntax, we've looked at the semantics. Now we're going to talk about pragmatics. So by this phase, a child should be able to use short sentences to perform lots of different functions. So what do I mean by that? I've got a nice list for you. If you'll take a look at your handout, it's on page two there. And let's just run through what these functions are and what each of these mean. And let me just say, we could do an entire show (laughs) on just this goal. Uh, we're not going to be able to do that, so we're just going to- qu- i just want to give you an example or two for each of uh these kinds of pragmatic functions, but I want you to be thinking about that and the kinds of things and this might be something that if you have a child who has words, you say this child has hundreds of words, and this child is even using some longer sentences on his own, but something still needs it something still seems to be missing. We still need something that he's not able to do he still doesn't sound completely uh as typical as i would think he would sound based on his vocabulary and based on his length here, what's missing? It's pragmatic, so uh, you'll have that happen a lot with your little friends, even your little friends, well, let me say this, especially your little friends with high-functioning autism. They may have a good vocabulary base. They may even be saying some longer sentences that maybe they had longer sentences at first that were really uh, echolalic or they learned them in chunks, that uh, gestalt language processing, maybe they did that, but you're still thinking what's missing here? It's pragmatics. So uh, let's look at what these features are, uh, these pragmatic functions, and see how you can think about adding those for a child. So is a child able to use words or hear use sentences, three to five word sentences, to request actions or objects? Most of the time our little guys can request, and if we've had them in speech therapy for a while, boy, we have worked on that, right? <laughs> so requesting is usually something that kids can do. Second thing, indicates that he wants something to happen again or recurrence. So, that's when a child is saying more or again or please, something that he wants that continuation. So, does a child have a word for that? Is he able to say a sentence to let you know that he needs recurrence? If not, that's a goal that you need to establish right now. Can he use a sentence to comment or label and tell you, describe something that's happening in an, a real-life action or uh, with an object or even with a picture. So is a kid able to describe something there or use a little sentence, even saying something like, that's a car or um, I see that dog. Something that would be, again, a comment or a label. If, if not, if you're, and again, lots of our little friends with autism, they have no problem labeling. That's their strength there. Again, they might have difficulty requesting. So that's why looking at these pragmatics, and their pragmatic functions is a great way to analyze how they're really using their language. The next uh, thing that we've already talked about is actually one of the previous milestones that we reviewed earlier. Answers questions with a yes or no. So that's certainly something again that we want children to be able to do. Are they using a short sentence? The next function to get a person's attention. So are they able to call somebody uh again to have them divert their attention to them so something like hey mom or look at me or watch me do it are they able to use words to do that are they still relying on nonverbal methods like leading or tapping or doing something to uh with their physical bodies or can they use words for that the next pragmatic function do they have a way to request assistance or information can they say i need help or help me please do they even you know have a little little Holistic phrase that they can use there. That's certainly a way to introduce another pragmatic function there is teaching them a little, again, a little all-purpose phrase that they can use like that. And that certainly is sometimes our, our foot in the door in teaching a new pragmatic function there. So look at that. What about practicing and repeating? That's imitating. We've talked about how important that is even here at 36 months. And we've been talking about that th- throughout this whole... We're on our 10th show i of talking about language milestones. And imitation is something that we've talked about in nearly every show. Uh, the next pragmatic function is greetings and closings. Do you, Is your child able to say... Uh, Bye-bye with somebody's name. And again, are they able to greet people when they go in? Do they recognize that that's a conversational skill that we all do when we walk into a room, we say hello to the people that are there. When we come home, we say hello to our siblings and our parents uh, that are there. Do they have a way with words to protest? Not just nonverbal body language, but can they use sentences to protest? Stop, um, that hurts me. Uh, I don't want that. Any of those little phrases, again, sometimes with our friends who've had language disorders and particularly with our friends with autism, those little holistic phrases just to get the pragmatic function going is a worthwhile goal for you to pursue for therapy. And then the last pragmatic function that a child has by 30 mo- 36 months is acknowledging when someone is talking to them, not just non-verbally, where they're looking at them with eye contact, but saying yes, or even something like, huh? (laughs) To let you know that they uh, are aware that you're talking with them and that you are participating in conversations with them. So that certainly is something that we need to be looking at. We need to set up situations to practice any pragmatic function that a child is not using spontaneously. If a child knows and says lots of different words, but he can't use a lot of different functions he still probably looks delayed or disordered and that's um, really really particularly important a, a big consideration when we're working with our friends who are verbal and who are on the autism spectrum and so our priority for these children is teaching them not just to talk but to communicate and that's what pragmatics and that's what focusing on pragmatics will really really do is help them really again not only say their words but to really really use their words i've written an entire section about that in the autism workbook i didn't bring that manual over today to show you Um, the autism workbook is an excellent resource for teaching pragmatic skills uh, to children I have the, I'll go ahead and include the link below for the Autism Workbook, but it's a comprehensive treatment plan for toddlers and preschoolers with autism, particularly helpful uh, for kids who here we go, <laughs> for, who are at level two or level three with autism, and they have moderate uh, to more substantial support is required. So if you're looking at pragmatics and you need some practical strategies to help you teach those, the autism workbook would be an excellent resource for you. The next milestone is counts to three. So by the time a child celebrates his third birthday, he can count to three by rote memory. Now all of us who deal with kids work on one, two, three all the time, right? We use that a lot. And the most functional way to do that is just to target rote counting and to practice that like we've already talked about in the context when we begin our games or our routines. There is no more functional or no more effective way to teach this skill. We need to talk to parents when we're looking at this milestone that this is just rote counting. It is not direct one-to-one correspondence at this age. And so when we're teaching this, we do the completion or the verbal routine method. We count one, two, three. You know, we do that for a while. And then what do we do? We use the same strategy that we just talked about Uh, Back in the the last milestone, we use the completion strategy, so we let the child fill in for three, so we're counting one, two, and we let a child say three, and we create anticipation with our voice. Anytime that we want a child to complete with a, a, a phrase that we're using, using anticipation with our voice is the best way to do that. Uh, and so again super easy goal for parents to work on as a therapist you're probably doing that if you've been saying ready set go with a child exclusively start doing the one two three one two three and they'll be able to do it and again like we talked about with the completion method when we're doing one two and we're letting them fill in three you do the same thing for two you start at one And a child then will fill in two three and again that's how we back it up that's kind of how we think about backward chaining we leave that last little part for a child to fill in and he kind of learns the routine from the back from the end to the beginning sometimes parents don't get that they think they don't really recognize that that's how kids usually learn best they'll think that they should do it from the beginning to the end so teach them that trick it's it's a great neurological trick to teach parents The next skill is names basic colors accurately now there are different uh timelines for this some sources say by three some sources say by four but let's go ahead and talk about here by 36 months so when a child has turned three he should be able to identify the following basic colors red blue green yellow purple orange black and white so for many children on our caseloads we're going to focus on teaching one color at a time and we spent a lot of time uh, talking about colors back in show 458 so if you've not uh, need a review of that you've not listened to that or watched that recently go go back and listen to that we're not going to repeat all of that but above all we need to make sure that a child before he can say his colors he's going to be able need to be able to do what understand those colors and receptively identify those colors so before we begin all this expressive practice, that's blue. It's blue, tell me blue. You know, before we have a child really say it, we need to be sure that he can understand it. And before kids are even, you know, which one, that would mean that we're saying, which one is blue? Show me the one that's blue. And he's doing it non-verbally by pointing even before we do that kids what kids match colors so matching comes first so if you are teaching a child colors and you've gotten to this point with a child and you're saying oh my goodness he's three and he's still not really saying any color words don't start with the expressive goal first do it receptively like which one is red show me the one that's yellow find the one that's green do that and if they can't do that Back it on down to matching. And so every professional who's even remotely involved with preschoolers has their preferred way of working on colors. And while we think about using art activities with markers and crayons, there are so many other things that we can do. Spice it up a little bit and talk about colors all day. This is where really incidental teaching is most effective. And incidental teaching means what? It means when it comes up, we're just going to do it. And so talk to parents about that. And again, that expressive naming piece comes last it comes after we've done all the other uh pieces first so be sure you're talking with parents about that hierarchy we're going to match colors then we're going to receptively identify colors then we're going to expressively identify colors now we're down to the last two milestones on this list and they are both dealing with early wh questions and we talked about this back in the introduction but let's just talk about kind of break this all down again because answering and, understanding and uh, Using, asking early WH questions are our goals that we work on as speech language pathologists from toddlerhood all the way probably through what? Early elementary school, right? Maybe even mid elementary school because of the whole language processing piece. So let's talk about this continuum uh, and and let's look at what a child should be able to do by this point. And again, go back and fill in our holes for kids who aren't able to do this yet and walk through that continuum and that sequence of how we teach them uh, to be able to do it. And again, when we look at answering questions, usually we think about that as an expressive task. And I think I've said this on nearly every show where we've talked about it in this podcast series. The longer I do this job, I think about answering questions as, I mean, as a receptive task. And again, that's the problem with so many of our little friends with language disorders. And it's not, we, we spend a lot of time trying, expressively trying to get them to imitate the right answers and to repeat us for that structure. But if we will go back and just look at the receptive components, because we're the first people who work on this, we're going to do a, a our children, you know, much much more benefit looking at it that way and looking at it like with what's the continuum. If they can't answer this kind of WH question, what about this kind? Let's keep backing it down to where we find out where the breakdown really, really occurs. All right, so let's walk through this sequence again. So, sequence of questions a child should answer by 36 months. And again, I know we have reviewed this several times, but it's so important. Let's do it again so that we really understand what our milestone is here. So, first... Toddlers learn to understand yes, no questions like want a cookie or is daddy home? Next, young children learn to understand WH questions like what is that? And they understand that by 18 to 24 months and especially in the context of labeling familiar objects and people at home or familiar pictures in say a book. Next, uh, and then that's 18 to 24 months. And then that next WH question comes in uh, almost a year later, Uh, yeah a year later, 30 to 33 months, we want children mastering where is questions, so the where's part, and then they add who by 33 to 36 months, which is where we are, and then uh, when, how, and why questions are acquired after a child turns three, so we're going to be talking about Next, So I want you to kind of keep that continuum in mind. And remember, it's receptive first, and then it's the expressive part. So let's review these first ones quickly in case you need a refresher. And again, we've talked about them in previous shows. So if I'm going quickly and you need some more information, go back and listen to those uh, previous shows. So the first one here is yes, no questions. And we've even talked about that uh, here uh, with this show, with answering yes, no questions accurately. But here the complexity increases. And so... uh, with with the yes no questions and then again the what questions and so we've certainly asked kids what's that what's that what's that you know ad nauseum especially kids who have language delays but that's the kind of next question that they should should do. Instead of bombarding a child if a child is having difficulty with confrontational naming and those kinds of things, it's completely unrealistic to think that a child can be able to pop out that word if he's not already identified that object receptively first. And so those kinds of questions, once a child can consistently find an object on request, then we're going to encourage him to imitate the object's name. He's only going to be able to answer the question spontaneously, what's that? to name the object or picture after he's imitated the word for a while. And so answering what do you want is still an open-ended question that a child can only correctly answer if he knows and understands the word. And so using choices all along and, and working through the imitation process is how we build up that comprehension for new words and so that they really own that word in their expressive language bank so that they can answer those questions. So some of the specific milestones we have talked about today are included in this kind of practice for WH questions. So for example, what are you doing? We talked about this when we were talking about teaching action words and verb endings. And so describing an object's function that we talked about in the last show in 458 is another way to answer a what question. You know, What do you do with a brush? What do you do with uh, you know what? What do you do with a uh, with a pen? What? It, what? It, why do we wear shoes? Those are things that are coming up. But again, they have to understand that basic uh, that basic. What are you doing before they're going to be able to answer those questions about object function? So that was kind of to get us up to now, get us up to here. And so, a- answering basic wh questions, they answered yes no first and then that basic what's that and what are you doing so that was before this age period so now right here at 30 to 33 months we're up to answering where questions. So, where questions are understood at this age level even if the child is answering non-verbally. So, a child with typically developing language will begin to answer verbal where questions by the time that they are up to this age range. So, earlier in language development, they can locate items and do it non-verbally, but now we're going to really bump it up so that they're answering these questions with words. And so uh, we need to be sure that we are asking these questions in the context of daily routine. So if a child regularly goes to preschool or daycare or church, we're going to include where questions so that they can answer questions about these location places. And again, we're expanding this. It's not just where are your shoes here in our home? You know, where'd you you leave your cup? Where's your passy? Now we're expanding this out. So these where questions are uh, locations beyond kind of our immediate environment. Now, to work on this skill in play, what are we going to do? We're going to pretend that our characters are going places. So, we can pretend they're going to the store. We can pretend they're going outside. We can pretend they're going home, going to see grandma. All those things that we do in our early pretend schemes. And so, to bump it up, we're going to ask frequently, where are you going? So that a child can respond in context. Now, as children turn three, one of their, their uh, favorite uh Play activities, they've gotten to the point now that they're really using their imaginations, which means what? They're using words to think about things and to plan things, and they're using words even as they remember previous experiences. So now they start to want to do what? They want to pretend, and so they start to play dress up. And so that's a fine way to target WH questions with kids here at this level, and particularly to elicit an answer to a where question. So when a child is, has her purse and she has her baby stroller, like she is going to push her baby somewhere, ask, you know, where are you going? You know, where's your baby going? Uh, you know, and and really, again, uh, setting the stage for that. All right. Remember that prepositions and location words are needed to verbally respond to most where questions, right? So initially, many toddlers are going to answer where questions with non-specific language like right there. (laughs) And so while that's technically a correct response, let this be a reminder to us that a child really needs more specific new vocabulary. We already talked about this also uh, in a previous milestone. Isn't it so interesting how all these things emerge together as children are learning to use prepositions in phrases that we talked about as our third milestone on the list today. They're also what? Learning to answer WH questions. And so all of those go together. And so again, we've we spent the last several shows talking about all the, all the early WH questions. And so now we've talked about the where's question that they're going to be answering that now with Uh, prepositions in phrases and now they can also the next WH question that they answer in this period is a who question. So who questions are typically understood by 33 to 36 months and answered shortly thereafter when a child turns three. And so here what is the correct answer for a who question is a person's name or a title, a generic name for a person. So like a like a police officer or teacher even if you know you don't know their names. And so, uh, another early who question to answer is when a child uses a pronoun to answer for himself. So who wants a cookie? Who wants a popsicle? You know, I do or me or something like that. And so, uh, we have to think about when we are, uh, looking at these milestones, does a child have enough vocabulary, uh, to be able to compose that expressive language response. You know, we've spent some time talking about the receptive piece, which is so important. But again, vocabulary development plays another big role here. Can't answer who questions unless you have lots and lots of nouns and lots and lots of names for people. All right, so that was answering, or I'm sorry, that was, yeah, that was answering early WH questions. Let's move on now and talk about asking early WH questions. Now, our last milestone that we're going to be talking about today is learning to ask early WH questions. And so again, let me say it again, we're here at this 36 month period. Children with typically developing language learn to ask WH questions by the time they turn three. And so we've walked through that progression already a couple times in this show. And so the, the, it's always the same guys. When there's a receptive language component, we can expect to see it in that next age range expressively. So, when we're, when we're looking, when we've been looking at children responding to and answering early WH questions, it's that same sequence when they're going to expressively use these, these skills to uh, ask. So, what's that is the first question to emerge. And other early WH questions usually include approximations and immature grammar like where go or who dat or what doing. And so, again, same emergence as learning to answer Um, and so the early versions there and the uh, approximations are fine for a late talker eventually we're going to want to correct the grammar so that he's using the adult version and the more mature version of the question but these kinds of mistakes are part of normal language acquisition too So, when a toddler is not beginning to ask questions on his own, it's usually not because he hasn't heard the question, right? Because what do we do to late talkers? We bombard them all day long, right? With question after question after question. So, it's not that they haven't heard it. It's not that they haven't been exposed. And so in our attempts to entice our little friends to communicate, we often badger them with questions, right? And so do their parents. And so to get a toddler to ask a question, we've got to do something beyond modeling. So we have to set up structured play situations to facilitate those first questions. And so I have tons of ideas for this. I'm not even sure I've mentioned this book in the whole show today, Teach Me to Talk the Therapy Manual. And so we're just going to summarize a few of these ideas here. But again, we are setting the stage and setting up these structured play situations so that a toddler has an opportunity to ask these questions. So I like to use, one of my favorite activities here is just having something and pretending like I have a secret or it's something that they need to, again, what? Inquire of me to be able to find out. So you can maybe have objects in a bag so maybe a secret bag to create that curiosity and facilitate the question what's that and remember going to use your heightened affect with your own voice to generate anticipation and so you might do something like again you're going to let's say that you're going to play with a train set and so at the beginning before you you know you've got maybe some of your maybe you're at a train table already but you don't have the train set or you don't have the trees or any of the other background scenery so what do you do you kind of hoard all of that and so that you're looking and you're going <gasps> what's that? And so again, you are maybe even pretending. (laughs) You are so excited about that. And that's just to uh, really emphasize that curiosity there so that a child will uh, imitate that question that you've modeled. And to target what do you want, to target other questions, use favorite characters or animals. And again, you're going to give maybe a kid the job. So maybe you're going to, maybe the animals are hungry or maybe they are dirty or maybe they are something that the child has to do for them. You've got to give a child the job. So maybe let's say that we've, let's say that we have a bunch of baby dolls right here and that we we're saying that okay we're going to feed these babies and so the child's job is to feed them and so you'll say but you don't know what the animal wants to eat and so or the baby dolls you're not going to know what the baby doll wants to eat and so the the child has to first ask the baby doll what do you want and so again uh maybe they don't have the whole uh there maybe they're not able to sequence those four words there but just to get that that function there that asking that question and so set up some of these situations and again by the time that children are this age by the time they are or, or even developmentally approaching 3 they should be able to imitate that whole you know what do you want uh, uh, whatever you whatever your wh question happens to be that you're getting them to ask but sometimes they may not be able to do all of those specific things my point is you want that pragmatic function first you've got to get them to do it and then they're going to be able to be pickier you're going to be able to be pickier about what specific Uh, structures that they uh, imitate. So that's a good thing to do. To facilitate the question, what are you doing, which is an uh, an early WH question that we want a child to be able to ask, use a child's older siblings or parents to perform different actions for an early game of charades or pantomime. And so, for example, uh, somebody could be pretending to, uh, you know, brush their hair or take a bath or eat an apple or anything, even if you're doing this contextually in the In the in real thing, and again, sometimes we as SLPs we struggle to kind of, you know, oh, this isn't as natural as I want it to be, or. you know, don't worry about that. Just do it. Just set up these situations, again, where you are modeling, you know, what are you doing? Tell me what you're doing. What are you doing? Because your goal there is for the child to ask the question. So prompt the child to ask, what are you doing? It's a fun game for small groups of children. And if a child can't think of an action to perform initially or for a long while, just whisper an idea there. Whisper, coach them. Uh, For learning to ask where's questions, what are you going to do? You're going to hide things (laughs) so that a child has to ask. Uh, And so hide and seek games are always fun for that. It's always fun if you're working in a group of children too to teach these kinds of things in the context of uh, real life games that a child would play with typically developing friends. So a game like hide and seek. And so where one child goes to hide and so where we're asking, you know, uh, where's Logan? Where's Logan? We might even, we've talked about this in earlier age, age ranges where we've introduced little songs uh, with the uh, you know with little hand motions. You know, where oh where oh where is Logan? Where oh where oh where is Logan? Even those little things. Even if you're thinking a child is closer to three, some of those earlier strategies. If you've never heard the word where's, you're going to have to prompt that first, and then again move it into the more mature context. Of uh, asking that question all right so where's we're gonna hide things we're gonna hide people we're gonna hide toys we're gonna sing the song we're gonna do everything we can to kind of facilitate that uh, another strategy that we use here again that we would call this would be environmental sabotage so that when you have things that a child needs to perform an action he's got to ask that question so if you are getting ready to oh, play with play-doh you might have Uh, the cookie cutters out and the scissors out and all the accessories, but you don't have the Play-Doh. That's a perfect opportunity for a child to be able to say, where's the Play-Doh? And so not giving them a critical piece of equipment that they need to uh, uh, do their little play routine is a great way to facilitate that. Alright, to practice who questions, I always like to defer to playing with a dollhouse and or even just real life a little playhouse where we're knocking on the door and using different characters so ask the child who's there or who is it now if you don't have much success using uh like i said that dollhouse do it with just kids so do a tent or even make a place or even just have it with a door where you are on one side of the door and a child is or with the child that you're treating and another a mom or uh, with a sibling or another child or something somebody is coming to that door and so uh, stay with the child inside the structure have the friend or the mom or whoever knock on the door make it fun for everybody by using silly words and surprising voices you know who is it or even gruff you know who is it that kind of thing really really facilitates that and so anything with an unexpected silly kind of sound effect is going to make that more salient and have a child want to uh, imitate. So introduce the WH question in a functional context or two, and sometimes it emerges without much additional effort. And so let's say that we play the who is it game a few times in therapy, and uh, mom starts to play it, you know, maybe... Uh, starts to play it a few times at home, we may not have to do much beyond that. You may not have to go much beyond that if you can just set up these situations. Other times we have to work on it longer and harder. And so sometimes we have to dig down and teach just one question type at a time. Now questions are really, really hard. And that's why I said that as a pediatric SLP, if you've worked in older settings, if you've worked with elementary age kids, you've probably been working on that. And you know how to do that for older kids. But here, maybe take those ideas that you used on worksheets or in an app or a flashcard and really bring it back to real-life 3D uh, doing activities so that a child can really do it. And really, really remember, too, that when we see persistent difficulty answering and asking questions, that probably signals a language disorder rather than a delay. So some of these things we can really, really use diagnostically, and again, as a pediatric SLP, especially if you have worked in settings beyond early intervention, you recognize these things because these are the issues and these are the goals and the skills that you've had to work on with kids, you know, for. You know, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. So again, we're at the very beginning of this. And so we want to be sure that we are doing everything we can to really facilitate conceptually what these things are. So that, you know, I always feel like as, as pediatric or early intervention SLPs receptive language should be where know we're always thinking about talking and always working on that but if we can get the foundations there with receptive language we'll really really be serving the children um, on our caseloads all right so that's it that's our list of expressive language milestones for 30 to 36 months i gave lots of examples for teaching those skills in every routines but i want to show you the very best resource for this this is my manual Teach Me To Talk, of the therapy manual. I wrote it over 10 years ago by pulling together all the milestones that we've talked about in the shows. I included the most practical ideas that you can use as pediatric therapists when you're working with children. Uh, in whatever setting that you're in, but it's also a wonderful resource for parents. So if you were a mom watching my podcast and taking these courses right alongside therapists and you were trying, this is a wonderful resource for you. So this will really guide your therapy at home. It'll show you the goals that you need to be working on, as well as give you several activities that are easy for you to do at home. And so uh, this book is still the foundation for the therapy sessions that I do even all these years later. So if you don't have it, it's a, a resource that I can highly, highly, highly recommend to you. All right. Uh, if you need the continuing education credit for this show and you are listening or watching on YouTube, that link is below. If you're listening on your podcast, podcast app please be sure to go to my website at Teach Me To Talk so you can get the continuing education credit for this show for only $5. All right, that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I'm Laura Mize, Pediatric Speech-Language Pathologist, and you have just participated in Teach Me To Talk's podcast. Thank you. <laughs>